Hello and welcome back to The Long Short. I'm Tom Kyo. And I'm Drew Nichol. So this is our final episode of 2023 and in time-honoured tradition we're taking stock of the major themes across the alternative investment universe and how they have developed over the past 12 months and also look ahead at what we predict will be the most important areas to focus on in 2024. And to do this, we are delighted to be rejoined in the studio by Amos CEO, Jack Ingalls, who is better placed than most to give an enlightened view on the state of play of our industry. Jack, you are very welcome back to The Long Shore. Thank you both, and it's, um, it's good to be back. Jack, it's been almost 12 months since you last appeared in The Long Short studio, and it's been an eventful year to say the least. And when we spoke to you last December, you suggested that the continued volatility in financial markets would push investors to seek out alternative assets to best preserve capital and diversify their portfolio. So now, with the power of hindsight, how would you characterize the current market environment for alternative asset managers today and over the past year? Yeah, I do remember saying that, Tom, uh, that we were going to have a bit more volatility, a bit more uncertainty in markets in 2023. And I think that's very much uh, what we have had all year. Uh, Interest rates are obviously higher than where they were last time I was on this at the end of last year. Uh, And as we're being told, they're going to stay higher for longer. Uh, So that's really the backdrop um, of of markets that that alternative managers are having to face right right now. And that produces uncertainty. It produces volatility. And that's before you even add in uh, some of the the increased geopolitical uh, situations that we're experiencing in various parts of the world, very sadly, at the moment. So all in all, challenging markets um, to make sense of. And when I look then at kind of how, um, let's, let's start off with hedge funds, how they have fared this year in these market uh, conditions, um, I think you only need to look at the, the very wide dispersion in performance numbers between the best performing hedge fund uh, managers and funds uh, and um, uh, and those at the other end of the scale, the worst performing ones. I think dispersion is at kind of near, if not at, historic whites. Uh, the top um, uh, the top 10%. Uh, top decile of hedge fund uh, hedge funds have delivered over twenty percent year to date, uh, whereas the bottom decile, you know, they've sadly done um, uh, rather poorly. They've lost sixteen percent uh, year to date on average. Now let's compare that then with um, uh, with how uh, uh, markets broadly, public markets that is, have um, have performed this year. So yeah, you know, on average, let's say that hedge funds are up. Five six five six percent this year, which is not particularly special. They've done better than bonds. Um, uh, Barclays aggregate bond index is uh, showing a modest loss of one two percent year to date. When we look at equities, um, the picture is very mixed. If we look just at global equities, the MSCI World is up twelve percent, the S and P up nineteen percent, the Nasdaq um, up twenty seven percent or so. Um, but it's not been the case all around the world where equities um, have been having a stellar year. Really, where there's a, a, a technology-heavy um, uh, indices, uh, such as the NASDAQ, they performed extremely well. Um, look at the UK stock market. It's flat on the year, Tom. Uh, Hong Kong and China indices down 15% or so. Uh, um by contrast, the Nikkei is up 25% year-to-date. So uh, a very diversified performance across major stock markets this year and a very diversified uh, and dispersed 
performance um, uh, amongst hedge funds, as you would expect, because, of course, hedge funds pursue a multiple uh, of different strategies. And certainly within that, some strategies have done better, some have done worse. Uh, and so let's, let's just call it a mixed year. Uh, the conditions have been challenging in the marketplace. Uh, some have done well from them, others less so. And when we were talking this time last year, one of the the big pieces that uh, we discussed was the uncertainty that we were going to face in in the year ahead from the SEC. And you pointed to several key pieces of of regulatory amendments that were due to come out. And and sitting here today, we now have greater clarity on the final text of of several of those pieces, most notably the Private Funds Advisor Rule, which regular listeners will know that AMA is challenging in the courts alongside several other industry bodies. Now, I I don't want to ask you to go through all the technical details of why we believe they will be damaging to our members and the global industry, because we have produced a lot of public content out there already, and we can link to that in the show notes. But could I just ask you to speak to the wider picture of why AIMA has chosen to litigate on this issue, given that we have never had to do so in our in our decades-long history? Yeah, it's the first time uh, we've ever done this. And uh, it's not a decision that we take lightly, but it is a decision that we took after very lengthy discussions um, with, with both our membership and with other interested uh, trade associations whose members were also impacted um, uh, by this, and particularly the private fund advisors' rules. But it has been an eventful year uh, from the SEC. There's more uh, yet to come, uh, and therefore uh, more decisions yet to be made by us as to what our response might be. And you know, the starting point when we look at any new regulation is, um, you know, how similar is it to the original proposals that came out? How much has it differed? Uh, is it harmful to our members? Uh, is it um, harmful to the industry uh, and therefore beyond just managers, but those investors um, who commit their capital uh, to the funds in our industry? Uh, is it adding cost? Uh, and in, in the case of the private fund advisors rules that we found that um, Uh, it was sufficiently harmful, sufficiently costly, uh, that we needed to look into the fact as to whether there was some recourse against the SEC to push back on this, because we did not think it was beneficial at all uh, for the industry or the industry's investors. And and that's when you start looking at kind of the process by which the SEC has arrived at the final rules. while the final rules themselves differed from the original proposals and maybe at first glance looked to have been softened somewhat, when we actually delved down into it and the various appendices, uh, that really there was not much softening at all. So we then ask ourselves, do the SEC have the authority to do this? And you know, rulemaking can't just happen in a vacuum and rulemaking um, uh, has to be done within the powers that the government legislators bestow upon a regulator. And we don't think that has happened in this case. Uh, and indeed, we fear that it may not uh, be the right process in a number of other rules, which are currently um, at the proposal and, and finalization stage. Um, so 
when you when when you arrive at that sort of situation, you feel that um, you've got a fairly strong legal argument to make that the national regulator, in this case the SEC, uh, has not followed due process, uh, is trying to shoehorn um, new rules into existing acts and their interpretation, novel interpretation of certain clauses in decades old acts. Uh, and is that the right way that new rules should be um, uh, be brought into an industry? Uh, effectively, legislators legislate and um, regulators apply that legislation. And we feel there's something missing here. Uh, and we think it's very important um, uh, to therefore challenge these um, uh, the, the, this nature of rulemaking that the SEC is making, because I think it's a danger of precedent um, for the future that if we don't, then that sets a, 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 a very negative way in, in which the SEC could in future uh, go about um, uh, other rulemaking. And you mentioned other rules there. Of course, uh, more recently, AMA has launched a second challenge in this time related to the SEC's short selling and securities lending proposals. For any listeners that haven't heard the recent news on this, can you, again, just explain why we feel these rules need to be challenged? And also, just as a second part to this, could you help non-US listeners that maybe are less familiar with the the practice of, of challenging the regulator in the courts understand why this is a bit more commonplace in the US compared to other jurisdictions? Yeah, sure. So what you've just um, uh, talked about there is the... Um, uh, the latest rule finalisation on both, um, well, there's two rules actually on on securities lending disclosures and uh, and short selling uh, disclosures, short sale position uh, disclosures, which goes much further than um, uh, what was already in place in the market and and required reporting from managers. So it's not as if the SEC is starting from scratch and asking managers to uh, to report on short sales and stock borrowing. Uh, for the very first time, that has been in place, but um, uh, it, it has moved uh, it forward somewhat. And we think there's a very real risk um, uh, just beyond the, the, you know, the massive amount of data that the SEC is trying to accumulate here and, and, and putting uh, an enormous burden on managers at a very granular level to supply um, a significant amount of detail in a very timely basis. Uh, but we do think that actually disclosure, particularly as it leaks out of the public, um, can actually be very damaging to uh, to uh, hedge fund managers' investment strategies where they are going both long and short in, in, in equity markets because of that information getting out there, which could be used uh, against them um, by some savvy operators out there. So we, we, we think that's harmful. But when we actually looked at this one uh, a little bit more closely, what we did notice when the rule was, was finalised there were some some elements in that which weren't even in the initial proposal. So when we there's there's a very um, you know there's an act in the in in the United States called the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, uh, by which a, an agency, a government agency, a regulator needs to um, follow certain procedures in um, in bringing out new rules. And we don't think they've done that in this case. Um, uh, and, and so that's led us to, uh, again, on this one, uh, want to take legal action. Because, again, I think the process by which the, the SEC has arrived at this um, is, is flawed, uh, legally flawed uh, and without legal merit. So um, uh, that, is, that is what we're doing there. And to, to answer your question, uh, you know, it's not 
very common to sue re regulators in, in the US, um, but it is not unknown. Uh, and there have been a number of instances of where uh, a challenge has been made. Uh, and, uh, and, and the case has been won, not by the SEC, but it has been won by um, uh, the challenger. Uh, in a, I think a simple, a rather lazy argument would say, well, of course, we all know that um, uh, the US is, uh, is, is the litigation capital of the world. And I, and I, I don't think that really explains um, why you might see this more often in the US. And I would agree that in other parts of the world, it's, um, it, it's a very alien concept to, uh, to, to um, be suing a national regulator. But there is, as I described already under the Administrative Procedure Act, there is a defined process in the US under which new rules can be, um, can be finalized and adopted. Uh, and in this case, in these cases, we don't think that has been followed. So it's given us a rather, um, uh, in our view, a very straightforward route to mounting these challenges that we're talking about. Jack, although the bulk of AIMA's efforts have rightly been focused in the US this year. Our global colleagues have been doing a lot of work in other areas in terms of our advocacy as well, but also our research and thought leadership. So away from the US then, what else can you highlight to our listeners in terms of AIMA's work carried out for its members over the past year? Just sticking with um, with regulation for a minute here. I mean, at a global level, one of the uh, one of the very discernible themes that is um, uh, that has bubbled up very strongly this year, led by central banks, uh, led by financial stability boards, uh, led by regulators as well is a concern of where the next vulnerabilities to the financial system might lie and suggesting that they might lie in the activities of, one example would be in the US Treasury market of hedge funds um, who are trading the strategy of the basis trade in, in US Treasuries. Another one would be uh, within the private credit industry where there's been substantial growth of that sector where um, lending to uh, directly to corporates uh, is uh, now in the hands of um, private credit funds uh, and has moved away from banks. So, you know, understandably, regulators want to understand those things a bit better, understand where, um, if any, there might be some uh, systemic risk uh, that could uh, come from those activities that I just mentioned. My concern is is that um, they might be looking in the wrong place. Um, you know, this has been a year where we've seen another collapse of a bank in, in or several banks in 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 the U.S., but um, started with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and and naturally that puts central banks on edge, uh, and they start casting that net a little bit further. So. Big, big issue for us is to make sure that, um, uh, that the wrong decisions are not taken. Uh, and we are, we are somewhat concerned at the moment by the way those conversations are going. So I think we've got our work cut out, uh, and that's going to be a big theme for us for running into 2024. Um, you know, still on regulation, uh, you know, we've talked about the U.S. as having been um, particularly challenging for us this year and continued to, to, to be so and will do into 2024 for us. 
um, been a bit lighter in other parts of the world. In fact, there's been some some positive developments uh, in the UK, for example. We've, we're seeing in the post-Brexit world, the UK government, um, you know, seeking to get better regulation, not more regulation. Uh, and through some of their reforms, the Edinburgh reforms, uh, various other pieces, uh, things trending in the right way. Uh, one example of that would be around their short-selling um, disclosures and, uh, and thresholds. So uh, we take that as a positive. Folks in the um, uh, in the industry will be very familiar uh, with AIFMD. We seem to be waiting for a very long time for uh, the um, finalisation of what we call AIFMD2. It's been going on and on, but we'd expect that to be complete in um, in the early part of 2024. Uh, and I'm happy to say, I think the, you know, the work that we have been doing to make sure that um, uh, that really uh, as minimal change to that comes about as possible uh, is actually going to be the end result. And we're very hopeful that um, that whatever uh, the final result is will be very manageable uh, amongst our members. But of course, our work is not just all around regulation, as you well know, Tom, having uh, conducted the survey on um, uh, the use of artificial intelligence uh, amongst our members. It's been a huge theme um, from, you know, if you cast your mind back, it was only a year ago that people first started hearing about ChatGPT, and now 12 months later, uh, it's almost impossible to have a conversation with anybody where AI is not talked about, and you did a very timely early survey of our members as to how they are um, thinking about using AI in, in all parts of, of running their business, both on the investment side and then both on operational and compliance side. So um, big trend there, I think one to keep a very close eye on and will be um, hopefully at the forefront of understanding how that can be used to the benefit of our members as we move forward. And this what is a very exciting time for it. AMA and the ACC are delighted to announce the return of the Private Credit Investor Forum at iConnections Global Alts 2024, taking place on Monday, January 29th at the Fountain Blue Miami Beach. LPs and GPs from around the globe will come together to discuss the key trends shaping allocator sentiment and the evolution of the asset class. The day will commence with a series of Meet the Allocator Roundtables and Interactive Workshops and moves on to a program that sets the agenda for the industry. Take part in the conversation with leading asset owners and investment managers as they debate what to expect for private credit in 2024. As a sole membership association representing the global private credit market, we look forward to welcoming you to the only dedicated private credit conference during the annual term of investment week in Florida in partnership with iConnections. Come enjoy one-on-one -on -one networking and take a deep dive with your peers. See you there. I want to stick with the, the positive areas, if possible, now we've sort of boxed off the, the slightly more negative US regulatory side of things, because it was only this time last year, although it feels a lot longer ago, that we were still talking about the long tail of COVID impacting many areas of our business and our global members, but particularly the ability of people in APAC to meet in person and meet investors and meet their peers. And this year was the first time that the APAC Forum was a solely in-person event, which I believe is the first time that has happened since 2019. And that was one of several times that you were able to get to the region, Jack. So would you say that this issue is now resolved? And would you say that we're back to pre-COVID levels or are we sort of in a permanently changed environment when it comes to in-person engagement? I think when it comes to uh, the desire to attend events in person, uh, I think um, uh, we're very much back to to where we were pre-COVID. But 
And it was only in March this year that actually Hong Kong removed the mask restrictions. Uh, in Singapore, uh, also, uh, you had to wear masks on, on public transport up until about the same sort of time. So it's not that long ago that kind of the final restrictions uh, were lifted. So there was no doubt a huge amount of enthusiasm as those restrictions lifted to get back and get back and meet in person and particularly to attend large-scale events such as AIM have put on. So we saw that um, in in kind of some of the attendance numbers that we, we had at some of our events this year. So the Singapore Forum had 75% higher attendance uh, than, than last year. Uh, the overall against pre-COVID attendance numbers were well up uh, on where we were in 2019. So uh, I think there's that sort of initial burst of enthusiasm of freedom uh, that got people uh, out and to attend events. And yes, I've been out there three times this year and you know, very much as in other parts of the world now, it feels as though it's behind us uh, and it's enabling us to do, I think what is natural for people uh, to come together, discuss the issues of the days, mingle with their peer group and hear some good quality content, all of which the AIMA events are designed to do. And sticking with the idea of, of certain areas of geographic growth then for our industry, uh, both you and Tom were, were in the Middle East this year speaking to regulators and asset managers and, and building out AIMA's community there and, and understanding a little bit more about why the people that have set up shop there recently in the UAE or nearby have done so. Do you expect to see continued interest in this region for alternative asset managers next year and onwards? I was just out there um, last week, actually hot on the heels of, uh, of you, Tom. You were out there about a month um, a month earlier. Uh, I was speaking at a um, uh, at a large conference organised by the um, uh, the government there on, in in Abu Dhabi. But I also visited Dubai, and I must say, um, you know, it's palpable the energy and enthusiasm um, uh, out there for uh, the commitment that both those centres. Um, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are um, uh, are putting into growing their financial centres there. And yes, we've definitely seen uh, um, a move of firms uh, getting licensed there, setting up offices there, uh, and in some cases, some of the larger firms actually housing more than just a few people there, getting to uh, towards a hundred people and expecting that to to grow even further. Next year, so a critical mass has emerged in 2023. I think of of alternative managers and hedge fund managers out in the region, and um, you know there are some some you know some very obvious things to to see out there. You know where uh, economic gloom and uncertainty exists in um, in other parts of the world, and I'm sitting here in London on a grey. December morning, um, uh, I have to say, it was a lot more appealing to be out in a very vibrant uh, Middle East UAE uh, last week. But it's not just the weather. uh, It's not just the lifestyle. Obviously, the tax environment there is very attractive for an individual. It's actually also fairly attractive for a corporate entity uh, to set out there. And I think that's probably one of the big drivers um, that is is drawing um, people to want to actually move out there. You know, I think one of the key things, it's got a very good time zone. You can access it very easily. Uh, flights in and out um, uh, are pretty simple. Yes, it's further further to go to New York, but it's uh, it's 
it's fairly easily accessible from uh, from European hubs and from APAC hubs uh, out there. Uh, and in the world of what COVID taught us, we're getting used to a distributed workforce, and therefore it's a lot easier for firms to envisage having their staff in various parts of the world far more than perhaps they did originally envisage um, prior to COVID. So I think the trend is very much there. And then you, you, you add on the top of that, you know, those are very wealthy countries. The sovereign wealth funds there, um, as we all know, are enormous. Uh, they do invest in alternatives. Uh, and being close to uh, those pools of, uh, of sovereign wealth capital um, are, again, another attractor for funds to, to, to have based out there. So I think it's a trend that's going to continue, and we should expect to see that um, more people moving there in 2024 would be my guess. And Jack, AIMA's work with investors has also advanced this year through our Global Investor Board. So what can you tell us about the board's work this year? Yeah, of course. I mean, we've talked a lot about um, uh, uh, sort of regulation on on this podcast. But at the end of the day, what do our managers care most about? Our managers care most about uh, is um, the capital they get from their investors and therefore and delivering a return on that capital. So performance... Uh, in the markets is key for them, uh, and satisfying investors is very key for them as well. So having our Global Investor Board has been extremely helpful um, to give us some deep insights uh, as to how um, how people who uh, are sitting in chief investment officers' seats at uh, large global allocators uh, around the world, which make up our, our Global Investor Board, to really sort of see what their current thinking is on multiple different uh, different issues, and so that we can then kind of feedback some of that intelligence into the manager investor base and, and do our part in, in, in making sure that interests are aligned as much as they possibly can be. Now, we've just had in the past week or so, I think our, our year-end um, uh, meeting, it meets monthly, um, that Global Investor Board, uh, and they had a good discussion on what they thought about hedge funds, hedge funds performance, allocation to hedge funds at the moment. And uh, I think what I can say at this stage is that it's pretty mixed. Um, uh, Some people uh, uh, feel that they've done pretty well and hedge funds are delivering, uh, particularly on the diversifier aspect, which is one of the main reasons given for investing in hedge funds in the first place. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I think hedge funds will need to deliver performance, particularly with interest rates where they are now. If you've got um, a, uh, a risk-free rate benchmark of somewhere 45 5% at the government bond level at the moment, whether it be in the US or the UK or elsewhere, uh, you know, the expectations of investors goes up accordingly as interest rates go up. And I think uh, uh, managers understand that. Managers are going to have to deliver on that. Uh, and perhaps not enough of them have delivered on that this year. So uh, I think that's going to be pretty critical to maintain the faith of uh, of investors. Um, and I'm talking broadly across the industry because right at the beginning of this podcast, I, I, I pointed out um, that there are certain managers and certain strategies that have done extremely well this year and others less so. So it is about um, manager selection. It is about fund selection. Uh, but with higher interest rates at the moment here, uh, expectations are surely higher. That's been communicated to us by that um, that, that, that Global Investor Board. And so uh, we're going to need to see um, uh, delivery on that next year. Indeed. And we will watch that very closely. 
But I also wanted to ask you about the big ambitions we have to strengthen our investor engagement globally through our flagship investor conferences next year. So what can you tell us about these? On the investor forum side of things, I, I think this is really one of the um, really most exciting things that we've been developing over recent years. And next year will be the the 10th anniversary uh, of our investor forum, our global investor forum, uh, which we host in, in Toronto every year. We've just had uh, the, the, the 2023 one in October. Uh, and the with record attendance, record number of allocators there, uh, this is an absolute must, I think, for all members who um, uh, who are free to access this, uh, free to come, meet with investors, hear from investors. Uh, and so um, that's going to be a significant focus for us in 2024. Uh, and I encourage all members to um, already put it in their diaries. Um, and recalling our conversation also this time last year, Jack, you noted that private credit will be well-placed to benefit from the higher interest rate environment, coupled with the ongoing disintermediation of lending from banks to private players. So 12 months on and following the publication of our annual financing the economy paper from Amos private credit affiliate, the ACC, that observation seems pretty spot on. So then what can you tell us about the state of private credit going into 2024 and opportunities in this marketplace? In, uh, in a lending business, interest rates are critical. Um, the great thing about private credit is that uh, the loans that are made are largely floating rate. So as, uh, as the reference rate goes up, um, so does the yield on the fund with the um, uh, borrowing rates that um, uh, private credit funds are charging. So, you know, the returns are looking pretty healthy. But of course, with, with higher interest rates, uh, borrowers start to feel the pressure more. So uh, where, um, where private credit funds are really focused very deeply on the moment is on the risk management of their portfolios, working very closely with their borrowers, understanding where um, stress might be arising and getting in early to work with borrowers uh, so they don't get in a situation where they're unable to repay their loans. And I think that's a very critical part of private credit at the moment. But you know, you referred to that um, uh, the recent publication, which uh, is our deep dive study on the private credit industry. You know what it revealed in 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 2022. Okay, that's looking back a bit, but there was a record amount of capital being deployed by private credit funds. There was 333 billion dollars worth of of new loans uh, being made, uh, and just by comparison, it was. It's about 200 billion in just the year earlier in 2021. So uh, money is going in the right place. I think it befits the title of the of the paper, financing the economy, uh, and I think it is very critical that um, uh, for economies and, uh, and and corporates within the economy uh, to be able to have this uh, this access to um, uh, to another source of borrowing for them. Yeah, it's our prediction that the private credit industry is going to exceed the size of the private equity industry. Uh, in the years to come. I'm not going to give you a precise date when I expect that to happen, but let's say it's going to happen by the end of the decade. Uh, so we think the, the growth story is very much intact. The rising interest rate uh, or the higher interest rate environment produces a new set of challenges as well as actually providing higher returns. But overall, uh, I think the industry is in, in, in pretty good health. And you're seeing some really out, you know extremely large loans being made now. Uh, in the industry. So this is not just um, uh, small-scale lending to SMEs anymore. There's uh, 
there's a whole range of um, of strategies within the private credit industry, and it's continued to grow every year. So we remain very optimistic. Finally, then, it would be remiss of us to have Amos CEO in the Longshort studio and not ask you what Amos priorities are for the coming year. So what hints can you tell our members and our listeners about Amos plans going into 2024? So, I mean, of course, one of the, um, or if not the most important purpose of a trade association is to act as that mutual organisation in in and around advocacy and uh, and regulation. And so that's not going away. We would expect uh, considerably more of what we've already been doing in, 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 in testing the SEC. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly what we will do. But nevertheless, the SEC still has a number of rules to finalise. Even if challenges are not made, we've got to get into implementation mode. That um, Members have to be ready for the fixed compliance dates, which tend to be about 12 months after the rules are finalised. And a key part of what AMA does is provide the, the implementation guidance for firms to be ready for that. And so that's going to be a very key part. And even where we are challenging rules uh, in, in, in PFAR, for example, we're still uh, we're still going to have to provide an implementation guide. We can't just expect that we're going to win this case and nobody will have to do anything. Uh, we need to be ready with all contingencies. So that is going to be a very key part. You know, one of the key priorities really for some time now has been uh, our continued growth in, in the United States. And we've added... Uh, resources there this year. We've made uh, new hires, uh, both in in Washington and New York. You know, I'm happy to say that uh, our membership growth in the United States has been very, very significant yet again this year. So it it remains a priority for us. We think there's scope for us to grow further there, but I'm happy overall in the year uh, that our membership uh, growth has, has been uh, observed in, in almost every centre that we um, we operate under, but it's certainly been strongest in the US for us. Uh, and so I think you're likely to see our continued focus being on US issues, SEC, uh, US growth and bringing value to members there. Uh, but that's not to say we're neglecting other parts of the world. We have a fairly repeatable programme of events every year. We're going to continue to be able to do those. Uh, I was a bit sceptical uh, when we put on again our digital assets uh, forum in, in earlier in the year, which we put on in New York. Uh, a little bit sceptical I say that because obviously the uh, crypto space has been under um, somewhat duress uh, for all the reasons we know about uh, over the past 12 months. But um, there's clearly still um, a lot of interest, uh, a lot of participants um, looking at what is going on in that um, uh, in that particular space at the moment, uh, and perhaps actually some of the events there has been a bit of a watershed moment, and then we actually will see. And certainly, Bitcoin is back up now. What forty thousand, I believe. Uh, so uh, you know, having been quite a big focus um, for us when uh, uh, over in recent years, you know, I would expect that to continue. So there's certainly nothing we're dropping at the moment. I think is probably what I'm uh, suggesting by that. But, um, you know, I began this by saying there's a lot of uncertainty out there in the world, uh, and we need to just make sure that we are ready to uh, respond, ready to adapt to whatever uh, is coming next. Uh, and, and I feel that we're pretty well prepared for that. But who knows? Well, many thanks for joining us on The Long Short, Jack. Every good wish for the holiday season, and we look forward to hearing more from you over what is expected to be an even busier year ahead. Thanks very much. Good to be on, uh, and thanks for your best wishes.
and team. And that's it from the Long Short team this year. And given it is the last episode of the year, Drew and I wanted to take a moment to thank all the excellent guests we've had in the studio this year, without whom none of this would be possible. That's right. And it is always a highlight of my week to be able to record these episodes. And I really do look forward to it every time because we are able to call upon some of the brightest minds in our industry, as well as those really interesting niche sector specialists who are some of the few people that really can talk us through these topics and issues of the day and give us some really unparalleled insights. But Tom, you had an especially interesting year doing your perspective series, right? That's right, Drew. You know, it was a real privilege to be able to share the studio with some of the best known and most successful founders and CEOs of alternative asset management firms from around the world, all of whom are extremely generous with their time and sharing their insights. You know, I think it made for a fun and educational set of interviews. And, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to my co-host for that series, John Bozzini of KPMG. You know, we went through all 10 interviews and, For me, I learned a lot and it was great to be able to share the airwaves with him during that time. So thanks again to John and to the team at KPMG and to all the wonderful guests that made Perspectives this episode and the series that it was. Yeah, and as a consumer from that, it really was amazing that you were able to uh, get the time with those very prominent names and be able to just pick their brain on some really topical issues of the moment. So hats off to you guys for, for pulling that off. But speaking of shout outs, we must, of course, also thank the rest of the Long Short team. And by that, I mean our producers and marketing managers, Katerina and Chris, who do such an excellent job of making us sound coherent and clear every episode and they never really complain about having to redo stuff anymore so thank you both so much for all your hard work and long may that continue but speaking of next year we're excited to continue bringing you more content of what we hope is engaging and educational episodes that are relevant to everybody around the world so please do keep an eye out for more episodes in the new year yeah and speaking of which we really do enjoy hearing from you all so please do get in touch with your feedback you know, tell us what you like you know what we're doing rate us and review us on your preferred podcast platform you know drew you know it does a tremendous amount to help others also find us right absolutely yeah it really does go a long way so um thank you for everyone that's done it already um please do send us in we do read every email um we do appreciate it good bad and different Thanks for it all. But until then, we are taking a break over the holiday period. So from the entire Long Short team, from Drew, from producers Kat and Chris, and from myself, you know, we do hope you'll be able to enjoy the downtime and perhaps you might even get to listen to a couple of episodes. Um, but until then, we'll be resting up before we come back with renewed force and busy calendar with more insightful guests to give you a window into alternative investments in 2024. See you then. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.